0: Welcome to the First Baptist Church Podcast. We're excited to share this weekend's conversation. If you would like to subscribe, find us on iTunes or go to fbcsweetwater.org. Family is a very unique thing. I discovered that when I got married. I discovered that sometimes when you get married, you bring together two families that are very different from each other. Stacy and I met at Howard Payne and we just were really good friends after she decided that I was okay to be around. We were just really good for y'all laugh, it's true. We became really good friends and we just did a lot of stuff together and the next thing I know, we're married. That's just how it works. And, and you laugh at it, but it's the truth. You can talk to Stacy. you can ask her. It just kind of moved from being really good friends who hung out a lot to all of a sudden, I'm proposing and we're getting married. I can't tell you a definite time where we went from just friends to dating, or just friends to engaged. I guess I could tell you the engaged part; that's important. But I can't just show you a roadmap of how that worked for us. In fact, I had friends at Hard Pain who told me that I was dating before I realized I was dating. They told us that we, or they told me that we were exclusive, and I didn't realize that. And then I think I might have realized it when I took Stacy home for my mom's birthday. And my mom was thrilled that I had brought a girl home. That was like, and that's when I think maybe it clicked for me that we were together. But then after we got married, I realized that families aren't exactly alike. That her family and my family were actually pretty different. When I really noticed it was at Thanksgiving. And I've told this story on the podcast, so if you've heard it, you can tune out for about two minutes and then come back to me. We get to Thanksgiving. Stacy's family, they love Thanksgiving. That is their holiday that they celebrate. They gather together. They go over to a friend's house. They cook a feast. The guy who cooks it, he comes out and he's hot and sweaty, and there's just all this great food, and we just eat and eat and eat, like many of you do also. But we're at her house, and I see a tray of deviled eggs. And at my house, in my family, my grandma makes the best deviled eggs so good that if you don't get to them before the meal actually begins, you risk not getting one at all. And so as a kid, you wait till nobody's looking except for maybe Meemaw, and then you sneak up there and you grab an egg and you shove the whole thing in your mouth and you feast on it hope no one else asks you a question. So I see the tray of eggs at Stacy's house. I see nobody's looking. I casually walk over. I look around one more time. I grab the egg. I shove it in my mouth. It takes me about two chews to realize her mom and my grandma do not make deviled eggs the same way. <laughs> in fact, they're drastically different. Her mom puts green eggs excuse me green eggs green olives in them, and there's just yolk that's been mushed up with maybe some mustard. My grandma makes them with love and sugar <laughs> and apple cider vinegar, so they're sweet. So I grew up with sweet eggs, and then all of a sudden I get an egg in my mouth. I quickly found a place to put that egg away and waited till Christmas when Stacy sees a tray of eggs at the house. And she does the same thing, grabs it and eats an egg and realizes Mima doesn't make eggs the same way that her mom makes eggs. Family stories are the best stories. In fact, when I was thinking about what I was going to say to start off and telling family stories, I realized that most of them would get me in trouble, but that one wouldn't. Whenever I do a wedding, a funeral, or yesterday, a quinceanera, the stories that resonate the most with people are the ones that happen within our families. Because family's important. God's created family for a reason. Last week, we talked about the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's 400 years of silence. And then the church puts together the books of the New Testament in a very specific order and begins with Matthew. Not the oldest gospel, not the original, the first gospel— but they still choose it to be first, and it begins with a genealogy. Something that makes not a lot of sense to us when we think about why'd you just put a list of names if you're kicking off the story of the Messiah. But the church, the early church, realized there was importance to that genealogy. That as you read through it, it says that there are 14 generations from Abraham to David. And then 14 generations from David to the exile, and 14 generations from the exile to Joseph and Mary. And those are just numbers to us. But if we think about how important numbers were to Jewish people, to Hebrews, you begin to hear another story being told. If I talk about the number three, our minds, especially in the church context, drift to and think about the Trinity, an important number. If I talk about 10 and you look to the book of Revelation, 10 is the number of completeness. We have 10 fingers and 10 toes. Matthew talks about these 14 generations, but if we split those up, we have seven generations, seven generations, seven generations. Six sets of seven. Six is the number for man, for humanity, because on the sixth day, humans were created. Seven is that holy, perfect number, the number on the day of which God rested. And as as you read through the genealogy in Matthew, you realize that Joseph and Mary are the end of the sixth set of seven, and Jesus was going to be the seventh seven. That Matthew is telling us that the Messiah is coming and that something big is about to happen, and God's going to use some very ordinary people to accomplish that. Think about your own family tree for a second, your own genealogy. Think about the people that make up that family tree, the people that you kind of want on the outside branches and the ones that you like on the inside branches. We have a family in the church today that Kyler is a new uncle, and then Carl and Geneva have a new baby in the family, or a, a new, was it, grandson, cousin? It's a girl. Okay, a new girl in the family, and Kyler's new uncle, and he sends me this text the, uh, Friday night and says, I'm an uncle. And I said, well, Kyler, I'm going to have some tips for you today on how to be an uncle. Because Stacy and I, we don't have kids. But my brother, they have two little girls. Which means that I get to be the fun uncle. Stacey won't take credit for some of this, and you'll find out why. But I get to be the fun uncle. I get to anonymously mail gifts to my nieces. The first one I ever mailed, and they'll never know because they're not going to watch the sermon, so we're good, was a drum set. Because <laughs> they can't get me back for that. They can't. Si- they send a drum set to Stacy, it doesn't matter. I don't have kids for them to give it to. But all of a sudden, my brother's trying to figure out who sent this drum set to his daughter because she's playing really loud in the house. So this year, for her birthday, we got a little karaoke set. And I made sure to find the one that had the loudest volume on it. And I get a video. Of them, they formed a band, and their mom has made them move out to the tree house, and they are serenading the entire neighborhood with Christmas songs, with a little girl playing drums not quite as good as you, Tommy, but she's getting there, and another one playing a little guitar and singing at the top of her lungs about Jesus coming to Earth. It was great family stories are the best, and they're filled with people who are the fun uncles. And that's the same way with the genealogy. We get down to Joseph and Mary, but when you go back through and you look, there's some people that are like heroes of the faith that we get excited about. Abraham, the one the first covenant happened with. King David, the one whose line the Messiah would come through. Zerubbabel, whose name is just fun to say, but he's the governor of Judea. Judah, there we go, Judah. He's governor. But then there's the ones who you kind of look at him and you're like, why are they in there? They have a checkered past. Tamar, who tricked her father-in-law into having a relationship with her. Uriah, he didn't really do anything wrong. He was a good guy, but King David saw his wife and took her his own and had Uriah killed. And then there's good kings, and there's evil kings in the genealogy. But then there's the surprises, the ones that you're like, what's being told here? There's Rahab, a prostitute that helps lead the people into the land and conquer the land. There's Ruth, the Moabite, who we were surprised that she's even in it at all. But there's a story that the gospel is trying to sell of the inclusiveness of the Messiah for all. And then we get to Joseph. There's Joseph and Mary, and Mary's in there. And we talk a lot about Mary, but we don't talk a lot about Joseph. And that's where we're going to be today in Matthew chapter 1. A very ordinary guy that I think we can learn a lot from. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. I think first and foremost, Joseph is a protector. He loved Mary. Can you imagine the heartbreak when he found out that she was pregnant, and he knew that he was not the father? The mistrust, the hurt, the pain, that someone he loved and he was betrothed to, and he was going to marry, had cheated on him, and now she was pregnant. He had several choices that he could have followed through with in that culture, but he chose to love her by quietly divorcing her and not exposing her to her public disgrace and shame. The good news is he slept on it. He took time before he made that decision final. And we see that Joseph ends up being a protector of his family as they travel a lot. We're in the youth Wednesday night. Stephen May and I were up there. And uh, at one point, he was asking a question about Mary and, and the donkey that she rode. And everybody's like, oh yeah, she rode a donkey, but it's not in the scripture. But if your wife is great with child and you're traveling 90 miles by foot, you're finding a donkey for her to ride on, right? Joseph travels 90 miles from his town to Bethlehem because the census has been called. And then he doesn't even get to go home. He then takes his family and goes another 40 miles to the border of Egypt and probably farther in. And then when it's safe again, because King Herod is no longer there, they, get, they head back to Israel, 140 miles up into Nazareth. And then every year they travel to Jerusalem, another 90 miles by foot. Not in cars like we have today, 90 miles is zabbling and back. That's an easy trip for us. Many of us make it just because we want to. Can you imagine what that would have been with a pregnant wife? Can you imagine what that would have been with a child, even if that child is the Son of God? He was a protector. You don't have to look very far in the parables to see that traveling was a dangerous prospect back then. That there were bandits and thieves who awaited on innocent travelers, and they would prey on them. But every one of their trips, they get back safely, because they have Joseph the protector with them. Verse 20. told you he slept on it instead of just putting her away immediately he decides to sleep on it and an angel comes to joseph in a dream in the old testament there's another joseph one who's got a lot of dreams going on he has dreams he interprets dreams and his new testament counterpart is the same way god speaks to him through dreams and in the dream the angel arrives and says joseph son of david the only time that term is used for anyone other than Jesus in Matthew's gospel. And he says, don't fear. But I don't think it's the fear that we think of like shepherds on the side of the hill. It's don't fear your world's not falling apart, Joseph. Yeah, things look bleak. You think that Mary has cheated on you. You think that there's something going on and that she doesn't love you like you love her. But this is the arrival of the Messiah. This is ordained by God and this is a good thing. So fear not, because you, Joseph, Joseph, a dreamer, a faithful one who listens to God, you're going to get the joy of naming the Messiah. You're going to name him Jesus, which means the Lord saves. You're going to usher in Emmanuel, which is God with us, a totally new concept for that culture. Think of the Greeks and the Romans and their little g-gods that reside on mountains, that don't come down to engage in the affairs of humans, especially not for the good of the humans. But now God, the Creator Yahweh, has come down in human form, is going to be human for the benefit of humanity, to save humanity. Not to manipulate, not to get done what He wants done, but because He loves them. And Joseph, a dreamer, is going to be the one that gets the naming. As you go through the rest of Joseph's story, dream after dream happens. He's told through a dream by an angel that they need to flee to Egypt because Herod wants to kill the child. And then living in a foreign land, he has another dream after Herod dies and says, you can return to Israel and on the way back to Israel, he has yet another dream. An angel says, hey, Herod's son is on the throne and he's just as bad. Go up to Nazareth. Get out of the way where he can get a hold of the child. I think there's a lot of times that we hear these stories and we think about God speaking through dreams and we go, well, God doesn't do that now. And I'm not saying that God does it all the time, but I wonder how many times God speaks to us, whether through a dream or another way, and we don't listen. How often is the noise of everything else in my life preventing me from being faithful and listening to the voice of God speaking to me and saying, Teek, do this, Teek, go here. and It's because I'm so caught up in myself that I miss God speaking to me. Verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. The faithful one. Joseph did what he was told to do and named the baby Jesus. And as you read through the rest of the story of Joseph, as you read between the lines of what happened, you see that Joseph is also a provider. In Matthew chapter 13 and Mark chapter 6, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, goes back to his hometown. And the people of his town look at him and say, Isn't this the carpenter? isn't this the son of the carpenter in a derogatory way saying he can't really be a prophet that word carpenter there a lot of times we think of our modern terms of somebody working with wood putting something together building something building a manger out of wood whatever that is but the word is craftsman if you go over to israel you go over to the holy land there's not a lot of wood to work with so most likely joseph was also a stone worker that anything he did, he worked with stone, he worked with wood. He was a craftsman, and he used that to provide for his family. But he taught Jesus to do that also. Think about that for a second. The living, breathing Son of God being taught a trade. The living, breathing Son of God growing up working at his earthly father's side with wood, with stone, doing basic, everyday tasks as a part of the family. He learned that from Joseph because Joseph was a provider. We don't hear a lot of Joseph's story because by the time Jesus is grown, Joseph is probably dead. When Jesus' mother and brothers come to, to get him and to bring him back, we don't hear about Joseph being there. We only hear about them. But I think Joseph's legacy lives on for us today, and it's something we can learn from. For all the Peters, all the Jameses, and all the disciples who are vocal and who write books of scripture, there's thousands more silent, faithful disciples who just listen to God and do the work that God calls them to. I wonder how often in our lives God's just calling us to be faithful, In the little things, in the ordinary things. To go about our lives at work, at school, out with our family in such a way that we live out the life of Jesus and we look different, but it's because we're just being faithful to what God has called us to do. God doesn't call many people to go out and be Billy Grahams or Moseses, but He calls each and every one of us to walk with Him daily listening for his voice and watching for this place that he's working in the world so that we can lean into those and we can be a part of those. So that because of our ordinary everyday lives, God can do the extraordinary. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for becoming Emmanuel. So often we say that term, we sing that term, and we forget the reality of it. That is you coming down to earth to be like us, to be one of us, to live as we live, and ultimately to give us a guide, to give us someone to mimic and imitate, so that your kingdom can grow because of our faithfulness.